Hey, everybody. It's Bennett Glace. I'm here today with Chicago-based filmmaker, critic, and teacher Michael Glover-Smith for a special episode of Split Picks. Uh, Craig Wright, our founder and uh, usual host of Split Picks, couldn't be here today, so uh, I'm filling in. I've uh, got my feet on his desk. I'm farting in his chair, and uh, I'm ready to rip and roar. Michael, when we last spoke in um, April of 2020, it was to discuss your second feature, uh, Mercury in Retrograde, which was playing virtually thanks to the uh, Gene Siskel Film Center. Uh, what have you been up to in the last uh, year and a half? Well, I've since shot another feature film, uh, which I hope you'll want to interview me about when that is released early next year. So it's called Relative, and uh, it stars the great Wendy Roby, um, who your listeners probably know from uh, Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks The Return. And uh, The People Under the Stairs as well. And The People Under the Stairs, which is a great elevated horror film before the phrase existed. <laughs> so we're here today to discuss uh, one of my favorite filmmakers and yours, uh, Clint Eastwood. And uh, this may be a tough question to answer since he's so ubiquitous. and uh, It has been since long before either of us was born. But um, how did your relationship with Clint Eastwood start? Um, that's kind of a, a tough question for me to answer because I can't remember a time when I was not a Clint Eastwood fan. You know, I literally saw Any Which Way You Can on HBO when I was six years old. And I don't know if you've seen that film or not. That's the sequel to Every Which Way But Loose. And those are the two PG-rated action comedies um, where he stars opposite an orangutan named Clyde. And um, I haven't seen those films as an adult or even as a post-adolescent, but I loved those films as a kid. I mean, they, they were kind of the ultimate introduction to Clint Eastwood for a six-year-old boy because, you know, it's about a bare-knuckles fighter who hangs out with a primate. A couple of years after that, in 1983, I saw my first film starring Clint Eastwood on the big screen, which was a film called City Heat, uh, where Clint starred opposite Burt Reynolds. Again, a movie I've not seen um, as an adult, and I understand it's very bad, but as a child, I loved it. And uh, a lot of the kids did, you know, at my school. It was kind of a popular film because we all loved Clint from the orangutan movies. And we also loved Burt Reynolds from um, uh, Smokey and the Bandit. What, not Smokey and the Bandit. Cannonball Run. Oh, yeah. Cannonball Run just, you know, played on HBO all the time. So, so I was a fan of Clint as an actor. And then as I got a little bit older, my father showed me The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Um, I was probably 10 when I saw that. My dad told me it was the greatest Western ever made. So I fell in love with that. And then um, somewhere along the way, you know, I became aware of the fact that he was also a director. You know, I was watching High Plains Drifter and Play Misty for Me and so on and so forth. Um, I think the first film that Clint directed that I saw in the theater was Unforgiven in 1992, which I managed to see three times. 
And I was kind of, I've kind of been a hardcore fan ever since. So my discovery of Clint, the movie star, and Clint, the director, and Clint, the icon, all happened kind of simultaneously, I think. Until pretty recently with the the Star is Born debacle, I was like an obsessive Oscar fan. I wouldn't just like watch it every year. I would like follow along and like make my own predictions and read all the blogs. The first year I ever watched it going in basically cold was in 2004 when Million Dollar Baby kind of came out of nowhere. I was 10. Um, and, and won all the big awards. So yeah, I, I kind of became aware of his various hats um, at, at once. And um, even though I kept watching the Oscars, it was pretty quickly that I started to regard like the Oscars and the movies they rewarded as being like shitty. So I think like Clint's output after that would have struck me as kind of like white elephant art. And it wasn't until pretty recently, um, honestly, like last year, well, the one-two punch of like Sully and the Mule kind of got me like, into like a growing appreciation of his kind of late style. I think those are literally the first two of his movies that I've seen in theaters. Wow. Um, and then kind of, yeah, last year, um, early pandemic, I, I rewatched or watched and rewatched um, everything he'd ever made. And uh, was kind of completely blown away. So while I was still basically Clint agnostic in like 2014 and 2015, I remember reading White City Cinema for the first time. And I was surprised to see you go to bat for J. Edgar in particular and the Oscar era in general. Um, do you still consider the aughts to be his best decade as a director? Oh, um, the aughts. I did say that in that review. I should have reread that. Um, I don't know if I would or not. Um, I probably not. I don't think I would segregate his career by decade in, in discussing it any longer because I feel like there's really not that much of a difference. Um, I feel like he's, he's always kind of doing the same thing and yet he, he goes in and out of critical favor. Um, in a way that that you know is is not common. I think you know David Lynch is somebody um, who has had a similar career because uh, I was a huge David Lynch fan also as a teen. And um, when Wild at Heart came out and then Firewalk with Me, he really um, it was really like tragically unhip to like David Lynch for a good seven years during the 1990s. And it wasn't until Mulholland Drive came out that, um, that, you know, David Lynch became cool again. Um, so I think Clint, I, I don't know. I mean, I like all of it. You know, I like all of it. It's all good. Even the bad movies are good. Yeah. That's how I feel about him. I think he's one of those directors for me, one of the very few where like, every single film of his is interesting just by virtue of the fact that he made it. And the fact that he's kind of had like the same themes in now like six decades or five decades as a director is, is so impressive. Like I'm struck by how many like, like handoff films he's done where he's continued to outlast the person he was supposed to be kind of like <laughs> handing the reins to the two that come to mind are a perfect world. One of his best films and the rookie, one of his, we'll say weaker films, both of those right. are clearly supposed to be him kind of like, you know, passing the mantle onto uh, a Charlie young star. Sheen. The new Clint Eastwood. <laughs> both Charlie Sheen and Kevin Costner, you know, they had their moments as movie stars, but like, you know, as as the mule uh, as the mule proved, Clint is a bigger box office draw than, than Kevin Costner in his uh, in his eighties. Yeah, and I, you know, I just thought about uh, something the other day. Clint's career as a director uh, has now spanned exactly fifty years. You yeah. know, from Play Misty for Me in seventy one all the way up till now. And all of my favorite directors are directors who have careers that span at least 50 years. There's just something very satisfying, I think, about being able to study the work of a filmmaker who has a consistent 
vision, a coherent vision. And of course, you know, Clint's, you know, his films have evolved um, in terms of theme and style, but there, there is a consistency there in the same way that there is um, with directors like Alfred Hitchcock, whose career spanned 50 years, uh, John Ford and Luis Buñuel, you know, th they all had 50 year careers. The funny thing about Clint though, is normally when a, when a director's career spans half a century, it's because they start in their twenties and then they end their career, you know, in their seventies. And Clint is the only one who started in his forties and is still going in his nineties. Yeah. It's, it's so incredible that he's been like too old for this shit. And that's why, like, seeing people complain about how yeah. old he is in Cry Macho, I'm like, have you seen any of the movies he's made since, like, the 80s? Because the bit has always been that he's too old to be in whatever position he's in. Too old even, to be even, as attracted well, to women as he is. Go, going back into, into the 70s, I mean, I, I just watched The Iger Sanction for the first time, which um, was, that was the last film he, that was the last film for me to see that he had directed that I had not yet seen. And he plays an art history professor who's also an assassin, which is hilarious, but he's a retired assassin who gets pulled, pulled uh, in, you know, yeah. pulled back in for one last job. So that, that was 1975. That's really the first time he played a recently retired character and he's been doing it ever since. Right, yeah. Uh, Firefox immediately after that, he's pulled back in. But what's so funny about the Iger sanction is they make such a big deal about how old the, the French guy he's climbing with is. He's yeah. visibly younger than Clint. <laughs> 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 he looks a decade younger than Clint. That movie is incredible because he really did all those stunts. I like climbing. It's like Mission Impossible oh, yeah, you know, the, decades the, earlier. The mountain climbing sequences are incredibly shot and just really uh, fun to watch. So I was pleasantly surprised by it. Yeah, there's a, there's another good example of even when his movies are kind of objectively not great, there's there's a lot to admire and they're pretty interesting just by virtue of starring Clint Eastwood. So I, I, like, we, we kind of alluded to it in the in the discussion of J. Edgar or in, in referencing J. Edgar. So like, I don't know, to me, like Clint is a victim of a lot of misconception. I think people often dismiss him out of hand either as a conservative crank or as just sort of like a lazy, you know, one shot and we go to lunch director. Um, what would you say to people who can't see the artistry in Clint's uh, directorial output? Mm, that's a really good question. Well, he, you know, he's always been kind of perceived as anti-intellectual. And I remember, you know, Pauline Kael, like famously said that Clint Eastwood was not an artist. Like she didn't even say he was a bad artist. She like wouldn't even grant him the status of an artist. And that's because, of course, he was a movie star first who became a director. And it, I think it took some people a while to catch on that the films he was making were highly personal because, you know, in the eighties, he would kind of alternate between doing genre fare, um, or he would do dirty Harry movies and then he would turn around and do smaller scale films like Bronco Billy and honky tonk man. Um, and then I think when bird came out, that was sort of like his art film, um, that really made people, um, take notice of him as a director because he didn't appear in it. And it's about, you know, jazz. It's about, it takes place in a, you know, predominantly African-American milieu. So that was thought of as a departure for him. But of course, if you'd been paying attention at all, I mean, his love of jazz runs through his whole career, including Play Misty for Me and The Gauntlet. Um, so I think that, and, and Bird also famously premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. So I think that gained him a certain respectability when Unforgiven came out. Um, I think people really felt like he was close to retiring. Uh, 
<laughs> so I think the Oscars for that were almost like a lifetime achievement award. Like, okay, he's 62, he's old, he's playing an old cowboy. Um, and then, you know, 30 years later, he's still going. Um, so I think the misconceptions about him have kind of changed over time. Um, I think more recently, people watch his films through this lens of he's the guy who um, spoke at the Republican National Convention in 2012. So we have to talk about the chair because I feel like, you know, the, the past decade, his reviews have been the most lukewarm. And I think that has everything to do with the speech he gave in 2012. Yeah. Despite the fact that I honestly think these are his best films. I think, I mean, my, I think like, the best, best of his films for me are probably like Bridges and Unforgiven, like everybody would say. But I think like for yeah. me, the most interesting run of his career is like Sully the Mule, the 1517 to Paris, these like odd movies. And to your point about the, the, the seed of his love of jazz always being there, you know, people um, complain about the sort of detours and diversions in <clears throat> movies like Richard Jewell and the Mule, you know, him eating the ice cream sandwich or like them playing the, the entirety of the Macarena. <laughs> play, Mist play Misty for me features a scene that goes on for like five minutes where there's watching performances at the Newport Jazz Festival. Like he's always yeah. been this director. He's always been this sort of discursive director who follows his the weird little highways and byways. Which arguably reaches its apex in Cry Macho. Uh, I mean, I know we're going to talk about that in a minute, but I the, the relaxed quality of that film. I think Clint is at his best when his films have a very relaxed pace and... Uh, and when he when he digresses from plot, he is not a plot driven director. He's a he's a hangout director. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, that's why what's so great about Bridges is it feels like you get to watch like the entirety of like the three days they spend together, like in a good way. Like it just right. Sort of, I feel like he's at his least interesting when he's doing these sort of plotty kind of intrigue heavy movies. Like I love Absolute Power for like the Clinton body kind of it all. It's sort of like <laughs> sleazy, but like. I don't know, like you can't compare that to a movie where he's just sort of like letting the gang hang out. Like Bronco Billy, like when he makes movies that are rich in like camaraderie and yeah, diversions. Um, that kind of leads into my next question. I was going to ask, um, what are what are like the modes you especially like to see Clint in or what are the themes you especially like to see him uh, wrestling with? Well, I think um, I've really come to value his depictions of community. And, you know, Bronco Billy is the best example of that. Um, you know, so many of his films are about people who... Uh, construct uh, alternative families and it's all about you know how the family that you choose the people that you choose to be around um, is you know that's more important than the family that you're born into so um, his films are always about you know people making connections with other people forging connections um, oftentimes after you know ha having become estranged from their birth families that's something you see in um, in a million dollar baby, of course, where he's a, the Clint's character is estranged from his daughter um, for reasons that are never explained, but you get the impression that that he did something terrible in his past. And so, you know, him playing all these old characters for the past 35 years, he's always somebody who's haunted by his past. He has demons and yet um, is still able to learn and to make connections with with younger people and learn from his mistakes. And uh, I think there's something really beautiful about that. Yeah, I, I especially like the films where he casts like real members of his family, um, including the very hilarious appearance of Scott Eastwood in um, 
grintering up yeah <laughs> uh, as a guy in a tall tee uh but like honky tonk man and the mule especially um you know have him like casting real members of his family and sort of wrestling with that i also i also especially like him in like honky tonk man and um bridges mode when he's like an artist like straining to be taken seriously because like you can tell there's like a bitterness and like a chip on his shoulder despite the fact that he's been like the biggest of celebrities for like 70 years like when he won the oscar for uh, unforgiven he said something along the lines of like you know i want to dedicate this to the french critics who liked me before it was fashionable right um, like he definitely <laughs> like i don't know as much as he's been on top of the world he definitely feels like you know there's more he could be there's more he could get and i don't know i guess like if i like the films less i might see that as like an entitled quality but like i don't know he's, he's clint he does he does deserve all the awards <laughs> Right. But, you know, he, he he does have some conservative, you know, political beliefs. And I think that's what prevents people from taking him seriously as an artist. In France, of course, they don't care. Uh-huh. Uh, but here in America, you know, I, I remember after he gave that speech at the RNC and uh, I remember Rachel Maddow saying something like, well, he's uh, 82 years old, so I don't know if uh, that's what's uh, going on there. Uh, you know, implying he's senile, um, which I thought was really ageist and um, really disturbing. Um, but, you know, a lot of people sort of interpreted that that moment as a senior moment, like, oh, he's talking to an empty chair. He's crazy. Uh, when in reality, he was just doing an old vaudeville routine, you know, that a million people have done before. And it kind of um, killed in the room, too. Not yeah. that, like killing at the RNC is like a mark of quality, but <laughs> as awkward as it played <laughs> on TV, yeah. it sounded like a kill. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I don't think it worked, but uh, but you know, I don't hold it against him. You know, he's a major he's a major artist. Um, he's a he's a, one of the great American artists of the past century, in my opinion. Um, so on your blog, you've gone to bat for um, Jay Edgar and American Sniper, two films of his that kind of met. Uh, interesting uh, uh, critical receptions. Are there any other films of his um, that you think people got wrong? Yes. You know which one I love more than anybody is Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. That's what I need to revisit because that did, yeah. did nothing for me. But yeah. it's a weird hangout, overlong, lot, lot going on movie. Maybe, I would, maybe I'd like it on a re- rewatch. Yeah, I, I'd say uh, watch it again and, and think about Kevin Spacey and his real life persona and mm-hmm. the way that interfaces with the character he plays. It's really interesting. I mean, the role I, he was born to play, you might say. In a way, yeah. I was thinking somebody should make a uh, Rock Hudson's home movie style uh, essay film about Kevin Spacey, only using clips from his films. Uh-huh. And uh, you could you could do that and draw quite heavily on the night in the garden of good. <laughs> and then are there any uh, are there any clint movies that you won't go to bat for i mean you sort of said you think they're all interesting well honestly i i, I actively dislike the rookie of course uh-huh. um and i also actively dislike jersey boys believe it or not i you know it's okay i think it's the least personal film he's maybe ever made i think he was he had been trying to do a star is born and I think uh, there was kind of an unusually long gap before he made that one. And I think he was kind of just looking to do something um, when he made it. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think that the scene where uh, the one character like loses his virginity, it's usually set to Oh, What a Night in the actual musical. But when he loses his virginity and Clint is on the TV, like that, yeah. that, that buys it like two extra stars. <laughs> that elevates yeah, a two-star that, movie to a four-star movie. That moment was awesome. <laughs> and, you know, I would watch it again. I, I only saw it once in the theater when it, first came out but uh 
I, I'll 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 see it again if you see Midnight in the Garden of Eden. And I, I feel like before we transition into Cry Macho, I would be remiss not to ask your thoughts on the 1517 to Paris, probably the most maligned of his films. Yeah, I think that's the one that has the lowest critical opinion. I actually disliked it when I watched it. And uh, I haven't revisited it, but just thinking about it, my appreciation for it has grown. Um, there are things about it that definitely, I think, don't work. I don't like the early scenes where the main characters are children, uh, uh-huh. the scenes with their their mothers, uh, played by Judy Greer and the woman from The Office. Um, yeah, Jenna Fisher, yeah. I, I, you know, it, I, I don't think those scenes work at all, but there's something really bold about all the scenes of those dudes just traveling around Europe, going to clubs, you know, the selfie stick, uh, um, the gelato. Yeah. I mean, it's again, that's like completely non-narrative in a way that's really interesting um, because there's just no story there other than the incident of, you know, trying to prevent this terror attack um, and, and the theme of destiny, you know, <laughs> Uh, so I, it, it's almost an experimental film in a way. Yeah, no, it's, that's what I like about it. I mean, it's, again, it's, yeah, you have to sit through that first like half hour, which is, I don't know, it plays like, you know, like a God's not dead type movie or something. It's very yeah. like, awkward. And, you know, of course the immortal line, my God is bigger than statistics, but I don't know. How could you, how could anyone think of Clint is like a lazy, uninteresting director when at like 88, he's doing this like, yeah, experimental film. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we will transition into a discussion of Clint's latest film, his 39th directorial effort, Cry Macho. Beginning Monday, October 4th, Splatooth Media once again presents... October Horror. Each Friday, Split Picks will be plunging into the depths of four iconic American directors' films and careers. With special guests and longtime Split Toothers, we will compare two films straight from the mouths of madness of... John Carpenter... Wes Craven, George Romero, and of course, Toby Hooper. We're looking at the should-be classics. It's it's where you throw your cup of soda at the screen, but like, enjoy. Films that confounded critics. The New York Times called it hysterical vampire porn. Right, you're, you're perfectly describing why I like this movie. Don't, don't threaten me with a good time. And a few films that even the directors wish they could have remade. Join us all month at Splittooth Media to celebrate October Horror once again. The best to ever do it, at least horror-wise. So Clint's career has offered a lot of litmus tests. Uh, you actually, I think, used the phrase in discussing American Sniper. Um, I think you're referring to his like, late style. Um, yeah, well, and, and the, the auteur theory. I mean, every director, when they get old enough, you know, it's like the casual fans fall away, and it's only the diehards who are, who are going to bat for the late style. Uh-huh. Are, are you of a mind that if you're not a fan of the late style, you're not a fan of the director? Cause I kind of am. I kind of, yeah, I kind of am <laughs> yeah. too. I mean, I teach film history, so I'm an auteurist, you know, I uh-huh. teach the auteur theory and I love, I, I, I feel like the best directors kind of do their best work late in life because that's when everything sort of gets boiled down to its essence, <laughs> um, which is something I think you see in crime logic. Yeah. And it's like, it's what they like, want to leave behind. It's what they want to be remembered for. I think you see yeah. everything like start to come together. But um, yeah, his career has offered a lot of litmus tests for, for viewers and like the culture as a whole. The Dirty Harry movies, uh, his kind of fraught relationship with Sandra Locke, American Sniper, uh, Every Which Way But Loose. Uh, you know, moments where the question seems to be, are you in or are you out? 
and a lot of people decide that they're emphatically out. <laughs> um, his his late style has become kind of a multi-film litmus test. Um, yeah. Uh, could you describe Clint's late style and how it's um, evolved in the films leading up to Crime Watch? Yeah, that's a really good question. First of all, I want to uh, point out I'm a little bit uh, hungover right now because I was at a wedding last night and uh, I imbibed a little too much. But this is relevant because at some point during the night, I, I slid into the DMs of a couple of film critics and I, I, I told them that their, their um, inability to rally behind Cry Macho is the surest sign of the death of cinema yet. Uh -huh. uh, because I was just thinking about Cry Macho and how much I loved it. And I started getting upset over the failure of the critical establishment to back this film, which, you know, it's everyone should be talking about it. So having said all that, I mean, I think Clint's late style, how would I describe it? I, you know, I think I, visually, you know, his films are just incredibly economical in terms of just looking like every moment was captured from one angle and that's the only angle and every shot had to be exactly where it is. And there's something really awe-inspiring about that. I mean, like when I watch his films, in, in Cry Macho, he uses a crane shot. Uh, he uses a lot of crane shots. Um, but it's kind of like, you know, the crane is kind of subtly moving and, um, you know, he just didn't get any coverage. He's doing one or two takes and then moving on. Um, also, of course, his films are incredibly dark, uh, literally, as well as thematically. And, um, I mean, it's almost, they look almost black and white at times, uh, you know, the interior scenes are just very, very, very dark, very little color. Um, and they, I think they've grown darker over time in terms of what they say about America. I think he's become increasingly disillusioned with life in America. And that's one thing that I think connects him to John Ford because Ford's movies, I think, were more optimistic about America early in his career. And then later on, he depicts places outside of America as paradise. Like if you watch The Quiet Man or, or Donovan's Reef, you know, and then the films that take place in America just make it look like hell on earth, you know, like um, Cheyenne Autumn or The Last Hurrah. Um, it's like his vision of the America, of the settling of the West becomes more pessimistic. And I think you see something similar in Clint's work where, um, like Richard Jewell, that's just a dark, dark film. I mean, it's, you know, it's about this man's life is made hell by a combination of the government and, and the media. Uh, and then, you know, if you look at Cry Macho, which could be his last film, it literally ends with him turning his back on America and, you know, finding heaven on earth in a little uh, Mexican restaurant in a small town in the middle of nowhere. I think that's another thing the critics will never forgive him for is uh, Richard Jewell's uh, take on journalists. Uh, I think a lot of people took that really, really personally. And I think that's an incredible film. I think one of, yeah. I'd probably maybe put it in his like top 10, certainly his top 12. Yeah, um, it's fantastic. I, I think another popular complaint in the negative reviews, even some of the positive ones, is that Clint is too old for the material. Um, I think you and I agree that complaining about Clint's age is, is missing the point. Um, how do you think Clint's advanced age and kind of obvious physical frailty helped the film? 
Well, I think it, I think it helps uh, Cry Macho and I think it helps The Mule, um, you know, he, I, which are companion films. You know, he is really, he looks physically frail in both of those films in a way that he did not in Gran Torino. Um, you know, in Gran Torino, uh, he hands out a beat down to a, to a gangbanger and it actually looks, looks pretty convincing. It looks pretty convincing. (laughs) And, uh, by the time you get to, you know, uh, the mule, I mean, you know, he is, uh, he can't really, it looks like he can't really stand upright to his full height anymore. He's kind of, his posture is stooped. Um, and so there's a great deal of poignance to just seeing him and he's so thin, he looks like a bag of bones, you know? There's just a poignance in seeing his body uh, physically aged. But, you know, the, one of the great things about Clint's entire career is the way he uses his persona as a director. Like the way, I, I think his best films are the ones that he directs and stars in because he, he knows how to use his persona better than anybody. And in Cry Macho, you know, I've heard some people say, oh, he's too old. I mean, he's, he, he'll never be too old as long as he can stand in front of the camera. Uh-huh. He'll never be too old. Uh, he has a, ro- you know, he has a romance with someone who's several decades younger than him. But I believe, I believe she's actually older than his girlfriend is in real life. So <laughs> in a way, you know, she's, she's age appropriate. <laughs> uh-huh. The movie has given a lot of a lot of fodder to like the CinemaSins crowd. Everybody loves, everyone thinks they're so clever for pointing out like, well, why would Dwight Yoakam hire this like 90 year old man? And it's right there when he says, when he hires him, he says, he'll know the second he sees you, you're a real cowboy. He's hiring yeah. him not because he's Mike Milo, a guy who owes him a favor. He's hiring him because he's Clint Eastwood. He's Clint Eastwood. And however old he is, he's Clint Eastwood. Yep. I nearly started crying when he said that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like as a viewer, you bring your knowledge of all of his past roles to each each new film or or at least uh you should if you're watching if you're watching properly i want to ask you how you felt about dwight yoakam's first scene where he is just an exposition machine talking about before the before the booze before the pills yeah Uh, um (laughs) it's not great um yeah i don't know the script could have used another pass but i um if we're taking the film to be Clint Eastwood, you know, Clint Eastwood basically playing Clint Eastwood. It's it's sort of fitting that like exposition would be doled out like that because it's also doled out through like a series of headlines. Like it feels like, yeah, it's, it's a very, it's a movie that's very conscious of its like moviness, I think. Like right. he's, he's introduced as a man on a mission and it's only fitting that we would get this very like detailed, one would argue maybe overly detailed briefing before he goes off on the mission. Right, right. Yeah, I actually, the second time around, um, I didn't mind it at all. And I actually kind of admired it um, as what, you know, as well as uh, the scene with uh, Raffo's mother uh, as kind of the alcoholic, oversexed woman who first, you know, offers him a drink. And then the next time she sees him, she literally invites him into her bed. A lot of people have a problem with that. But I feel like um, you know, the, the thing we were talking about earlier that we both admire about him is his, uh, you know, the, the relaxed, digressive nature of his approach to narrative. It makes it even more subversive in this film because it's like he's getting that exposition out of the way as fast as possible. And, and the second time I saw it, I was like, oh, he 
he just doesn't give a shit. He's just, he's just getting it out of the way as soon as possible. And like, um, I think most filmmakers try and dole that information out more gradually and they try and do it in a sneaky way where you're not aware that they're giving you exposition. So there's something about the way that he just gets it over with. Um, it's like, here, here's the character. This is what happened to him in the past. This is all you need to know. Um, that makes the rest of it, it, it allows the film to really take off uh, after that, uh, because that the, the heart of the film is really that long second act where he's stuck in the town with Marta. And it's almost like that section becomes more sublime because of the way it's set up as a thriller in the first, you know, the first act. And then he's, he kind of breaks the rules of, you know, the kind of movie he's supposed to be making. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think having it, having it doled out as so nakedly like an exposition dump does, it speaks to like an indifference on Clint's part to the narrative of it all. It's, it's, what's, it's not important like why he's getting back on the horse. It's important that he's like getting back on the horse, you know? So I, I actually wanted to return to the uh, the scene with uh, Rafa's mother, which a lot of people seem to have a problem with. Age-inappropriate love interests in Clint's movies is um, another common complaint. I guess I'm inclined to say that, like, it, it's the same as, like, why would you hire a nine-year-old to do this job because it's Clint Eastwood? But I also don't know, I, I think my reading of the scene with Rafa's mother, I think that's just kind of, like, poorly written, quote-unquote, crazy behavior. From, yeah. I don't, I don't know that she's necessarily, like, serious in propositioning Clint Eastwood. Yeah, you may be right. Um, and again, that was something that I think struck me as a little clunky the first time. And, but then the second time through, I really enjoyed it because I knew what was coming later. And I, I feel like the first time I watch any movie, I'm always just like everybody else, just trying to figure out what's going to happen. And a film like this, like I think a lot of Clint's best films, is it's just about grace notes. And it's about just luxuriating in these graceful moments and that scene with Rafa's mother um I think actually kind of sets up a dichotomy between her character and Marta you know as being these sort of um you know two romantic possibilities for the character of Mike Milo and you know the fact that he has no time for Rafa's mother because he has a job to do um it kind of goes hand in hand it's hand in hand with what I was saying about the the, the exposition and the narrative uh, and feeling like you're going to watch a genre film because Clint's, uh, you know, he's got a job to do. Um, he doesn't have time for this, but then of course, as soon as he meets Marta, then he has nothing but time. And that actress is fantastic. So, um, so good. Yeah. I mean, the chemistry between her and Clint was amazing just the way they look at each other. But to me, you know, I, I cried the first time I watched it, but I cried, I cried a lot harder the second time. You know, uh, just watching them hold hands, uh, sitting around the campfire, dancing, her teaching him how to make tortillas and all the scenes where he interacted with the animals. You know, um, it's it's just uh, a really sublime, lengthy chunk of the film that is the absolute heart of the film. And that's where there's no suspense. You know, it's like the question of are the federales going to catch up to them or you know, it's just like the the narrative stops cold and you're just hanging out with these people. And I also noticed something the second time that I think is very significant, which is that the name of the restaurant is uh, Fundita de la Luna, 
the little kitchen of the of the moon you know the moon is traditionally associated with with female energy and uh you know in cultures all over the world and it's not i think that's not a coincidence because Marta runs the cafe and lives with her four granddaughters. Mm-hmm. So in a way, the film is about, I think, Mike Milo, this, you know, hyper-masculine rodeo riding guy who is also Clint Eastwood, movie star, sort of transitioning from this macho world to a more feminine world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the scenes with him and the kids are are, are really wonderful, and I, I agree. Um, the the performance from the actress who plays Marta is really incredible. I wanted to uh, kind of stay on the idea of the acting. Um, another common complaint, and this is one that's um, kind of dogged a few of Clint's film, is that his co stars aren't really up to snuff. Particularly the kid um, Eduardo Minette, who's making his film debut. Um, do you agree? Do you think Clint's uh, totally. style does yeah, less experienced I, actors a disservice? Totally disagree. Um, I thought that kid was great, and. Uh, I thought everybody was great in the movie, but I know where that's coming from. You know, he's famous for his one take style. People who don't like his films characterize them as slapdash. You know, like, oh, he's just, uh, he's not getting enough takes. If he would spend more time, then the performances would be more polished, which um, that's true to a certain extent, but I think his films also gain something from that one to two take style, which is a, a certain spontaneity uh, mm, that yeah. is absolutely thrilling to watch. And I mean, if a performance has awkward moments, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, it, it makes the film feel more alive and more like a documentary uh, a lot of the times. So that's one of the things I value the most in these films. That was a big complaint about Grant Serena is that the, uh, the, the, the child and teen actors weren't up to snuff. And I think it's another example. I certainly felt that way in 2008, but now watching it again, I'm like, no, that awkwardness helps. How would you feel if this like snarling, mean old man like came into your house and was like bossing you around? You'd be like awkward about it. You wouldn't know what to say. <laughs> you would you right, know. right, and and you don't want um, kids who you know hitting all their lines perfectly and you know look like they were pushed into show business by their parents. I mean, the kids he casts, they look like real kids. They act like real kids. Um, uh, yeah, I thought Eduardo Minette was great. And I think too, his like kind of like one or two take can, uh, style can get unusually unmannered performances from big movie stars too. I really, yeah. really don't like Leo as an actor. I think yeah. he just does the same thing in every movie. He does that same like New York accent. And I think he's incredible in Jay Edgar. That is probably because he wasn't getting enough time to burrow down into the usual like ticks and bullshit he does. Exactly. There, there's a story. I don't know how true it is that uh, you know DiCaprio wanted more takes, and that Clint said to his DP, uh, "Okay, go ahead and shoot more, but you know, make sure there's no film in the camera." <laughs> like I'm out of here. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, you know, I think uh, that's also true of Bradley Cooper in The Mule. I think that is his best performance. And I like Bradley Cooper. You know, I like A Star is Born. I think that's a good old-fashioned melodrama. But Bradley Cooper's, you know, he's trying pretty hard in the film. Um, and it's effective. But what he does in The Mule is more effective because he's just saying his lines. Yeah. He's, he's so unmannered like you say and so uh just everything he says is simple and direct 
And it really reminds me of, you know, the way actors were in the golden age of Hollywood. Um, Howard Hawks, you know, said that he had been trying for decades to simplify screen acting. And then Marlon Brando came along and, uh, you know, shot everything he had been doing to hell through histrionics. I think Hawks was being a little perverse because Hawks was basically saying my, my style was more natural. And now that the, uh, the method actors are here, uh, they're, they're over the top, but, um, but yeah, Bradley Cooper in the mule really reminds me of like somebody like William Holden, you know, who Clint worked with in breezy, of course, uh, somebody who just doesn't have time to fuck around with acting because he's just too busy. Just saying the lines. So on the subject of Clint himself as an actor, he's never been a big uh, emotive actor. He's, he's a presence guy. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he would rather kind of snarl a few lines than give a big monologue. I think my favorite example of that is, of course, in Unforgiven when, when uh, he's got little Bill on the ground, he says, I'll see you in hell, William, when you're supposed to be there. Yeah. Um, but he gets, he gets kind of an Oscar scene in Cry Macho when he's um, explaining to Rafa what happened to his uh, wife and son. Is this the most nakedly emotional we've seen a Clint character? Because even in Million Dollar Baby, I think he's kind of guarded and more yeah. like tough love in how he Million addresses. Dollar, uh, Million Dollar Baby was his last um, Oscar-nominated performance. And I think only the second one after Unforgiven. But I think, yeah, I think he's better in Gran Torino. He actually has a, uh, a very emotional scene in Gran Torino where he sort of tears up. But I think you know, Cry Macho, where you see that single tear roll down his cheek. Um, the thing that so impressed me about that was really the framing of the shot and the fact that you don't see his eyes. I mean, any other filmmaker actor uh, is going to really uh, show off the fact uh. that they're crying. But, uh, you know, he, you know, that's just not Clint's style. Um, an amazing choice. Any other actor turned director would be like, let me show you how great an actor I am on top of being a great director. And I know I'm so fascinated by actors turned directors because it's such like a, it's such an inherently hubristic thing. Like, let me yeah. show you that I, let me show you that I, I know how it works on the other side of the camera. Like, I don't know, like, I feel like it's, it's a way for like actors to show that they're smarter than people might take them for, you know, it's right. perceived as sort of intellectual. And I, I don't know. I like that, like this late in his career, even though there have obviously been, obviously been such huge like ego moments for Clint as both an actor and director in Cry Macho for his one big moment, he chooses something so, yeah, so simple, so understated. A lot of the film's power, and we've kind of alluded to this, comes from our existing relationship with Clint. Seeing him get back on the horse can't help but be moving if you're a, a longtime fan. Do you think the film will work or can work for someone who doesn't have a prior relationship with Clint as, a, as an icon? That's, uh, that's a good question. I would be interested to hear someone's analysis of it who isn't familiar with his previous work. Um, I, I think it would work, you know, but I think there's probably an added layer of poignancy for those of us who have been watching him, you know, for years and who have seen all of his films. Um, you know, the scene of just watching him on the horse, there, there are a lot of great shots of him in profile where you see him kind of silhouetted against the sunset. And um, his silhouette, you know, his face, uh, he's got, looks like it was, you know, carved, like chiseled out of stone. Um, and so it's hard not to see images of all of those previous characters, especially in Westerns like Will Money uh, and so on and so forth uh, in, in a lot of those like sunset landscape shots. I cried pretty early on just when it was like panning over the um, pictures of it. Cause just like seeing pictures of like actual, like younger Clint Eastwood in this movie, it's like, 
yeah, I don't know. It feels like it really has all been building toward this. And then, yeah, I don't know. When Dwight Yoakam says, like, he'll know you're a real cowboy, I was like, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, it's I, it's unfortunate that it's not doing great business. It's playing to, like, more or less empty theaters. But I was glad no one could see me, like, crying about a, a pan over a couple, of, uh, a couple of newspaper headlines. How about the scene where he pets the horse's nose? I just oh. lost my shit. We did it, partner. <laughs> oh. Yes, exactly. Or, or or the line, you know, I don't have a, I don't have a cure for old. Oh my god! Where he's talking about the dog, but yeah. he's also talking about himself. You know, incredible. So as a final question, um, it's I don't know, maybe a bit of a ghoulish, morbid question, but um, if Clint never directs another film, I mean, would you be happy to see him go out on Crime Watch Show? I think I would. Yeah, I think it's actually uh, I, he probably is aware, you know, and has been for a while that each film could be the last. I, I I think he will direct again, um, unless the box office is so bad that it'll be hard for him to get a budget. But I think he'll direct again because his mind is obviously still very sharp. Uh, but I honestly have a feeling this may be his last lead performance, and I and I think it's a very fitting performance for reasons that I've already stated. But especially just him turning his back on America and just driving back down to that little Mexican cafe. It's kind of like a vision of, of the afterlife, a vision of heaven. And that's where I want to see him be. That's a perfect place for him to end. Yeah. I, uh, I, I was so worried going in that it was going to end with him like biting it. It was going to end with him getting like shot by the federalized or something. I'm glad that we get to see him go off dancing as much as I love the ending of the mule and the ending of the mule makes me cry. Um, I think this yeah. is like an even better place for him to end up. I agree. And it's kind of the opposite in a way, because he's in prison at the end of uh, The Mule, even yeah. though he's, do he's, he's doing something that he, doing loves, what he loves in the prison. But, yeah. yeah. And, you know, the ending of The Mule, there's a song. Th this is really the last thing I would like to say, but there's a Toby Keith song at the end of that film. Don't let the old man in. Which is uh, apparently one of Clint's favorite phrases. Because that's advice that he gives himself um, in order to you know, in order to not be old, don't let the old man in is, uh, you know, stay young, young at heart. And um, I think uh, the listeners of your podcast are probably uh, fairly young. And uh, I think that they should let the old man in, meaning they should let the films of Clint Eastwood into their hearts. Beautiful. A beautiful, uh, beautiful sentiment to end on. Thank you so much again, Michael, uh, for uh, joining us. I hope you'll uh, join us again to talk Clint soon. And I hope we'll be able to talk about your new feature uh, when it has its premiere. Yeah, next year. I would love that. Thank you for having me. Yep, of course. Uh, and uh, Split Tooth fans, be sure to check out our site this October for more October horror content. We've got some great podcasts and essays planned for you. So, uh, you know, be sure to check out the site throughout the upcoming month. And thanks for listening.